0: Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from AS220 in Providence, Rhode Island. After weeks of mass protest against presidential malfeasance, all eyes have turned to the judiciary. It's the one potential institutional check on Trump at the federal level, aside, of course, from the shadowy national security state. The courts have the power to block laws and actions that are illegal or unconstitutional, Recent rulings by a federal district judge in Washington and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals made this clear after they stayed Trump's Muslim and refugee bans. But the judiciary, despite pretenses to the contrary, is fundamentally political. It can shred civil rights and economic protections as efficiently as it can defend them. Ultimately, major judicial conflicts get decided by the Supreme Court, which has been split 4-4 since Republicans blocked President Obama's effort to nominate Merrick Garland to take the late Justice Antonin Scalia's seat. Today, I speak to Jed Purdy about the judiciary and other matters. Purdy is a professor at Duke Law, a contributing editor at Dissent, and the author of three books on American political identity, including The Meaning of Property. He is currently writing After Nature, A Politics for the Anthropocene and has published articles in many, many publications. Jed, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, Dan. Trump's nomination of Neil Gorsuch was, like his choice of Mike Pence, a payback of sorts to the mainstream right, which was initially quite hostile to him. But despite Trump's unique bizarreness, there's nothing at all friendly about more ordinary Republicans. What does the Gorsuch nomination signal politically, and what might his impact be on the court?
1: Yeah. So in the narrow sense of the court's role in the issues where it's pivotal, from the extent of uh, federal congressional power, which was the basis of the um, partial gutting of Obamacare and more substantial gutting of the Voting Rights Act um, to abortion rights, to sexual orientation, um, eat liberty and equality. It, uh, Gorsuch going on the court wouldn't make that much difference because he would be replacing Antonin Scalia, who was very uh, far right on all of those issues. Um, Gorsuch also identifies as an originalist, which Scalia did. So even in that respect, um, uh, there would be a fair amount of continuity. For people who are concerned with the court's role as a uh, political institution, The much more significant questions would begin if Trump had the opportunity to appoint a second justice. And then, of course, uh, there's a a very substantial question in the background about what attitude to take toward the fact that this is the seat that
0: uh, Mitch McConnell's Congress held open. After Justice Scalia died, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to take his seat, and Republicans refused to take it up for consideration, uh, which was contrary to all historical precedent that I'm aware of. What do you make of the politics of what Republicans clearly successfully pulled off in terms of keeping the seat open so that they could appoint someone? And how do you think Democrats should now respond? There's a lot of talk about blocking Gorsuch because it wasn't uh, Trump's seat to fill. Um, And then and then there's a lot of talk about Republicans eliminating the filibuster. um, If they do that, what do you make of what's at stake and how that might play out?
1: I find myself a little bit of two minds about all of this. Um, There are liberals and partisan Democrats who are taking their stand right now on a set of um, institutional norms like the Senate granting a hearing to the president's uh, Supreme Court nominee um, as the core of what they need to defend to protect American democracy against Trump. And I don't think that the status quo of institutional norms at the time Trump came in or even 10 years before has a sacrosanct status in um, in democracy. Some of them are actually anti-democratic norms, including plenty of um, points having to do with the the role of the court in the country's politics. <clears throat> um, at the same time, uh, I think it's it's fair to say that the Republican right has been engaged in. Uh, systematic enterprise of constitutional vandalism and norm vandalism for um, more than a decade, really starting with the Clinton impeachment, um, the series of shutdowns and, and shutdown flirtations, the default threat, um, and the refusal to um, to consider Garland was of a piece with that larger Strategy. Um, I think a strategy of defying norms, if you think um, issues of non-negotiable principle are at stake, is totally appropriate. Um, and plenty on the right seem to have persuaded themselves, or at least persuaded their base, that that was true in the last year of Obama's administration. But I think that politics is is fundamentally um Reactionary and and destructive. So I find myself a bit between a rock and a hard place in terms of the the sort of liberal versus radical right debate about this question. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean it. It, it seems like there is a real question as to if Re- Democrats uh, force Republicans' hand and Republicans eliminate the filibuster, then Repub- then Democrats could come to regret that. At some point, but on the other hand, if they do uh, roll over and uh, even if they vote as a block against uh, Gorsuch, um, don't filibuster him, um, then it will be sort of a replay of this ongoing game of Republicans moving farther to the right and breaking what are at least you know perceived as as uh, the norms of American politics. However. Wrong or unsacrosanct, un, those norms might actually be, and in response, liberals just sort of uh, rolling over. Um, and then, so I guess the question is, the there's the question of, of of how of how Democrats should and and will respond, and then the question of how the left um, outside of this whole debate should should be assessing what's going on in Congress.
1: Yeah, yeah, and this this I think is. A more interesting question, really, or at least there's more to say about that about it that hasn't been said in other places. So, where where would you like to go with that topic?
0: Yeah, well, how 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 should the left be assessing this current showdown <clears throat> in in the Senate? Should it be um, about attempting to uh, steal the the spines of uh, Democrats we might hmm. not like that much? Yeah. Anyways, yeah. or um, or is there some <laughs> di- different analysis um, beyond being caricatured as the party base, which many of us do not consider ourselves to be a part of?
1: Right, right, right. <clears throat> I I have to admit, to again, to finding myself divided right now in in that I don't like, as I said, the the move to identify the status quo of norms with democracy, per se, or with the thing to be defended. But on the other hand, norms are not valueless. I think either they're not valueless intrinsically. Um, there are times when there may be benefits to a stabilizing effects of practice that one could appreciate from the left or even from a kind of imaginary transpartisan perspective. Uh, and um, and they may be valuable strategically as well and if 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 you think that there are real respects in which Trump represents uh, radicalization and intensification of the uh, danger of the American right, um, which I think is. True, despite not accepting the idea that he's sui generis in every respect relative to the long history of of, of far right and crypto racist um, Republicans going back at least to the Liberty League, Liberty League, Barry Goldwater, in many respects, Ronald Reagan. Um, Nonetheless I think there's a lot to be said for saying that one of the things the left has to want is to see <clears throat> is to see him broken and to see him broken by whatever means are available very much including the defense of norms that might impede his tactical progress so I think any defeat for Trump is a Good defeat. I would like to see the opposition to Gorsuch from the left not fall on the line of defending the norm that this was Barack Obama's seat to fill, but rather raising the set of substantive questions about what the hell a Supreme Court ought to. Um, sorry, excuse me. That sentence is falling into is falling into a rant. Um, the, rant, the, the question, rant away. What, <laughs> is, I was going to lose my syntax though. Rant, rant, rant good syntax is although also good. Um, so um, the the role for the court that Gorsuch would maintain take from take out from Scalia and maintain is a, is a very destructive one from a left and a democratic perspective. It, it would deploy limits on governmental power against the expansion of social provision, flawed as the Affordable Care Act was the um, the gutting of the Medicaid expansion by the John Roberts court, uh, was a real blow to the material lives of a lot of poor people and working people in the country. Um, <clears throat> he would um, weaken um, ballot access and democratic process of a kind that, any, um, I think, inter, any realistic um, full-court prospect for for left progress needs, and he would um, significantly weaken the um, the status of of public sector unions, and those are just the things that we're sure about, um, and and would double down on protecting the basically unlimited role of money in politics as a form of constitutional free speech. So all of those are, I think, profoundly reactionary and substantially anti-democratic postures for the Supreme Court. Gorsuch would um, maintain each of them or make it worse. And I think that the left has great grounds not to let... um, not not to let anyone off easy for allowing Trump to put that kind of perspective on the court.
0: I think that's a really important point because the judiciary is a tough thing to analyze from the left, I think at times. On the one hand, it's this thoroughly and nakedly politicized institution um, despite all of the theater that goes on every few years um, in confirmation hearings when everyone pretends that they are just these uh, judicial precedent-inspired and philosophically consistent Mm -hmm. automatons. But on the other hand, um, the judiciary is one of the few things standing between us and Trump and the Republican Congress in the short run, um, as the recent stays on the Muslim and refugee bans Mm -hmm. remind. Um, So the power cuts both ways. The judiciary has been used not only to guarantee the right to an abortion and gay marriage, but also to gut Campaign finance regulations, yeah. um, okay. and, and in not too long, it could very well be used to decimate public sector unions. How, mm-hmm. So, how, what? It seems like you're talking, you're suggesting that the left, the way that we should be differ from liberal analysis of the judiciary, is in having a more honestly, thoroughly politicized assessment. Is that is that right?
1: I think that is right. Um, I think that is right. The the, the Liberal tendency in discussing the court is to participate in a certain fetishism and mystification of judicial reason, judicial persona, an adoration of the personality of characters like justices Ginsburg and Kennedy that is really courtly in the old regime sense you know and not just in the sense of the supreme court in its in its marble temple and the and the liberal. Tendency too frequently, I'm afraid, is to participate in the jurisprudential game, where you pretend that the Constitution just obviously means whatever the centrist branch of the Democratic Party thinks it thinks it ought to mean this year, as if as, as if that were required as a matter of um, apolitical intellectual honesty or something. Um. So, so I think there are there are two respects in which the left should should do better than this. One is the is the rather straightforward one, of admitting to the deeply and pervasively political sources and political consequences of what the judiciary does, and the second is to try, in a serious way that is is more than tactical, to um, to take a view that you, that makes some sense. Maybe it isn't perfectly consistent. I think perfect consistency may be an an impossible standard, but at least makes some sense about the role of a judiciary and especially of um judicial review constitutional review in in a democracy um, and it, there's a there's a pretty straightforward case that there are certain kinds of checks that you should really that that thats a person on the left could could really get behind having uh non-electoral or not directly elected set of institutions maintain and those have to do with the abuse and exploitation of vulnerable of pervasively vulnerable groups so i think the courts um Race jurisprudence between the desegregation cases like Brown v. Board of Education and maybe about 1977 when it turned decisively against affirmative action and other race-conscious policies was a very creditable instance of a court working against um, state majorities and at points working against a national majority on, um, on a principle of equal citizenship or equal participation that was predictably going to get beaten up in the political process. I think that that's really salient now with respect to vulnerable legal and religious and national categories, um, refugees and um, and Muslims, American and, and non-American, not least. Um, so I think if to, to think about the court as an institution that can make some sense in a democracy is to have something to say about why it was completely messed up for the court to gut Obamacare. Um, but... Quite sensible for a court to stand in the way of an executive order that targets a discreet and um, politically vulnerable population on a very on a very thin rationale for example
0: yeah it it seems like the court is always uh, accepting the more banal uh, everyday statutory construction cases maybe but right. but even sometimes then some um, of those, some, yeah. <laughs> but that the court is always uh, uh, deciding um, uh, when and when not to step in as legislators of sorts based on mm-hmm. a political rationale Scalia and other conservatives um, love to uh, claim that anytime liberals on the court, step in to defend the rights of marginalized people, that they are substituting themselves at unelected judges uh, and putting themselves in the place of, 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 uh, of elected representatives, which is anti-democratic. But it, it seems pretty um, selective and hypocritical, the rights assessment there.
1: Yeah, I think it is. There, there are, I guess there are a, a few things to say. Um, and I'll um, come in just in just a moment to the, the point that you just made about the way that the current right wing of judges especially the originalists but not only present themselves as the consistent defenders of, of democracy um, I guess the thing I would say sort of leading up to that is that sociologically speaking there's no getting around the fact that um, the Role of courts um, guarantees a disproportionate role in government for a certain kind of professionalized elite. Um, that is just, uh, just a part of what the courts do and always have done, just, just as a matter of description. Um, it, it, it's hard, the other branches are hardly – um, models of egalitarianism, but there's a very a direct and organic relation between a uh, lawyerly elite and its um, habitus and uh, and the reasoning of the courts. Um, this fact is one of the reasons that the organized right has worked so hard in the last 30 years to colonize that that habitus and build a, a powerful um, intellectual and political subculture of, uh, of judicial reaction. Uh, part of that is the um, modern doctrine of originalism, which, as you said, <clears throat> presents itself as a pro-democratic defense of the people against judges who if they are not restricted to trying to understand the Constitution in terms of its original meaning, will almost inevitably—and the originalists will often say this as if more in sorrow than in anger—you know, just because we're human and we can be tempted, will judges will run off and interpret broad terms like liberty and equality. Um, to advance their own political or moral preferences, and the originalists say uh judges have you know no 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 business doing this in a democracy, and so originalism stops them from doing it and protects everyone from um from judicial tyranny um so what so what's wrong with this um <laughs> there's 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 a lot um there's there's i think on some level before we sort of go in into the details about what's wrong with this there there's a big structural problem with any attempt to make democratic sense of the situation of the um the u s constitution and u s judiciary, which is a problem independent of the ways that economic inequality money, and other structural problems uh mess with our with the system generally. Uh, Having a very old Constitution that's very hard to revise um, makes the link between democratic authorization of the Constitution and its contemporary interpretation just exceedingly fraught and unavoidably injects a lot of um, interpretive work into it. There's there's just uh, no way to decide. Uh, most of the cases that come before the court, whether they're about gun rights or gay rights or money in politics, without lending an enormous amount of meaning to the text that can really only be as a matter of like, the, the, the nature of interpretation, that, that meaning is produced by contemporary effort even if even if the judges use historical materials as as originalists want them to do so there's an there's huge interpretation and disputable interpretation that goes into Scalia's decision in 2008 establishing an individual right to um Possess guns for for the first time in in the history of the federal Constitution. You know, more well over 200 years on. Um, there's a tremendous amount of interpretive work about the nature of democracy, the nature of money, and the nature of speech. None of it contained in the original materials for the document or sense of the document in the money and politics cases. Um, and and so on. So it's a, it's a kind of impossible promise that they give and they they have the political space in which to make that impossible uh promise partly because this is a pretty hard system to make sense of um because as because as I said the the constitution is so old, so hard to change and yet in the hands of of the courts um, perennially involved in, in so many political questions.
0: And originalists always say, well, you know, it's not, it's a sad coincidence, maybe, or just a coincidence that our original reading of the Constitution, if it tends to benefit uh, whites, men and the wealthy at the expense of poor people, women and people of color. Um, but, but is originalism more than just a nakedly political economic uh, function is it an ideology that that the people who profess it sincerely hold
1: so I'm quite confident that there are many people who sincerely hold it of course, there are many people who sincerely hold all sorts of of crazy and pernicious beliefs so that just that just tells you that um jurisprudes are like there are like other True believers um, in the quality of their belief. Um, I think the the complexity of it is that no one ever comes to a theory of how to interpret the Constitution in a political vacuum. Um, no one comes there. Virtually no one comes there out of a theory of what law is, or a theory of what interpretation is, or a theory of how democracy works. They come there because they don't like Roe v. Wade, um, which was the basis. It was the occasion for uh, for the political ferment that generated a lot of original originalism, or they don't like the court's voting rights jurisprudence, which, although it's not great these days, um, got a lot better in the 1960s when the one person one vote rule was was established in a meaningful way for the first time, Um, and. Conservatives, jurists strongly objected to that and said it was no part of the original the original vision. So, if you if you are motivated to adopt a philosophy of of interpretation in a context where the meaning of that philosophy is to be anti-woman, anti-abortion, anti-democracy, um, then the sincerity of your of your conviction it doesn't doesn't get you very uh far with me um, but no but i think it's not it's not just a it's not just a trick but it's part of the perversity of life in the world of legal arguments that um, f- theories of interpretation uh, may be very sincerely held and yet may also be. In some way tricks in some ways, believing them too strongly just helps people to trick themselves into believing that they're doing less interpretive work than they're doing when they when they make their judgments or defend their judgments, for example, how on earth do you get speaking of of Uh, of of white and black or white and non-white, how do you get the view that the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection under laws invalidates affirmative action or race-conscious school assignment policies or any other very standard early 21st century center-left policy um, on a theory of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment when it was adopted in a time of pervasive race conscious policy, and no one seems to think that it blocked that policy it's uh it's impossible I think to take seriously as a grown up the idea that originalism isn't an instrument of um conservative political work, and yet it is also more than that um and that double quality is part of what makes it effective um if it were only and nakedly. Um, a way of getting to convenient results, then it would be, ironically, a less effective and less charismatic way of getting to those results, of making them stick, and of making liberals and maybe even some leftists think that they owe the results a kind of deference.
0: We'll be back with more of this interview in a moment. But first, I want to thank you for listening. And I also want to ask you for money. We are getting so much great feedback on this show, and our audience is growing fast. Please find us on Patreon.com to support us financially. Even a few bucks a month is extraordinarily helpful. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and just search for The Dig, and it will explain how you can support us. Thanks. If if I remember correctly, um, Scalia could never really offer a straightforward answer to the question of how um, originalism as he conceived it would comport with uh, Brown v. Board.
1: Yes, quite right. I think that's one of the—well, um, I should say it's widely recognized as a, a, an Achilles heel for originalism, uh, at least for any kind of consistent originalism. Because uh, Brown v. Board is really a kind of axiom of um, the theory of constitutional equality. Um, It's the uh, one hyper-canonical case, which if you can't account for it in your theory, should make your theory not be a serious one. Um, And I think the only way that a person in good faith can get from originalism— to, well, good faith is a pretty subjective concept. The only way way a person could hope to persuade me that they got from originalism to the principles of Brown v. Board is by understanding the original principle of equal protection of the laws um, from the 14th Amendment in 1868 as a rather abstract and general principle adopted with the original expectation that it would change its meaning through application and judgment in future situations and respond to changing facts, probably including facts like social movements, um, like the civil rights movement, um, so that equality actually meant something different in 1954 when Brown was decided than it meant in um, in 1868. Um, and once you take that path, you're not an originalist any longer of the kind that... Um, that Scalia and the other conservative originalists want to be you've become a living constitutionalist under a different name
0: or a or a faint-hearted originalist as Scalia once ch- yeah. chided that he'd become because he couldn't support i think like cutting people's ears as as a
1: yeah <laughs> right as, as, as allowed a loud <laughs> <it was fine. laughs> right fine under cruel and unusual punishment nailing people's ears to posts or something like that i I shouldn't say that so lightly. Steve Miller is probably listening, looking for ideas. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's an, it's getting uh, cut and pasted from this podcast into a memo circulating uh, <laughs> on the National Security Council as we speak. Um, I want to talk to you about another piece of conservative jurisprudence um, that has gone hand in hand, but it is not entirely related, I don't think, to originalism, which is um, – how conservative uh, judges and and legal scholars have expanded the first, the meaning of the First mm-hmm. Amendment um, in recent decades to protect big business in the name of free speech. Citizens United obviously is the big example, mm-hmm. but you've written that there's a broader shift underway. Can you explain what that shift entails and um, where it could lead in the future if we get not only back to a yeah. 5-4 conservative court, but a uh, uh, six three um.
1: yeah totally totally so the so the first amendment of course is a, it's liberals favorite um amendment, and I think there are, there are reasons for the left to take very seriously the value of protecting political speech, which is the mid twentieth century late twentieth century core of first amendment protection um, it one of the one of the classic cases before modern free, uh, political free speech is the one that sent Eugene Debs to jail, um, where he was during, I think his second, second run for the presidency on the socialist ticket, um,
0: for, for sp- telling speaking. for, sorry. Oh no. For speaking out against world war one, right?
1: Precisely telling workers that they were too good to be cannon fodder. And he went to jail for seeking to undermine the war effort. But, so that the excellence of the first amendment is a real thing. Um, and at the same time, there is Citizens United, um, which has opened a real—it's opened a real money in politics shit show that actually goes back to 1976, when the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Buckley v. Valeo that. Um, the, the spending money in politics is a form of constitutional speech and i think even just as perniciously actually maybe maybe more perniciously because in a complicated way there's there's some case to be made that um there might be a constitutional first amendment interest in spending money to advance uh, to advance a political um view uh buckley vivaleo held that it's not a constitutionally permissible purpose for, uh, uh, to justify a regulation of campaign finance to try to level the playing field among citizens or candidates or generally participants in the political process. So it, it embraced um, already in 76 what I would describe as a radically neoliberal view of um, speech jurisprudence um, in which there's a perfect homology between your economic resources and the volume of effect that you can have on political speech. Once that's in and there can't be deliberate, um, quite frankly, redistributive, egalitarian shaping of the playing field of political speech, then you're sort of already headed down the road to where where we got in 2010 with Citizens United. But that wasn't the heart of your your question. Also in 1976, the um, court for the first time began in a significant way to apply free speech protections to commercial speech, to the speech of – not even to say speech loads the question a little bit, but let's just say to the speech of businesses in – Advertising and other commercial transactions. Um, in earlier cases, the court had said that that speech was of no or ver- or limited First Amendment value because the First Amendment was about political debate about the kind of thing that, that Debs had gone to jail for engaging in. Um, and. <clears throat> Although the particular 1976 case where this was decided was a kind of plausible situation, um, pharmacists in Virginia were being prohibited from advertising drug prices, and this meant that there was a uh, lot of variation in prices across the state and lots of people were paying uh, more than they would have for, um, for their prescription and other and other drugs um, more than they would have had had there been advertising, so it had a certain local egalitarian effect which probably made it um, more more palatable to the I think it was something like an eight to one decision but it really took off the the modern doctrine of commercial speech has been used to invalidate. Uh, Vermont Law that regulated the transfer of prescription data for use in tailoring drug companies' advertisements, the uh, regulation was meant to level the playing field a bit between generic and um, patented pharmaceutical companies and um, reduce the influence of uh, targeted advertising on physicians and the court treated the transfer of data and the advertising of drugs as speech in the core first amendment sense Um, it's been used to strike down limits on tobacco advertising limits on alcohol advertising and if we take two steps back from all of that and think about what's going on conceptually when the transfer of data for crafting advertising in the pharma context is treated as speech, you realize that it becomes conceivable that a lot of regulation in the modern economy could be understood as requiring or prohibiting speech. For example, mandatory disclosures for um, financial operations. Like what if what if hedge funds were required to become much more transparent? Would that forced speech violate their first amendment right to remain silent it's It's quite possible that the case would certainly be brought, and you could imagine a trumpist court that would be sympathetic to it i i would I would say this there have been very <clears throat> at a high level of abstraction there have been various times when the court. Um, when conservative pro-business, pro-capital jurists have used a portion of the Constitution to enshrine certain key transactions in the economy of their time as constitutionally sacrosanct. In the late 19th, early 20th century, really up until the New Deal, that work got done by a conception of liberty of contract that the court found in the um, due process clause of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. And the idea was the deals that you strike are your own to choose. Um, you can't be barred, um, you can't be prohibited legally from, say, entering into a really shitty, long hour, low wage contract. So no minimum wage laws, no maximum hour laws.
0: Because a minimum wage law and, would violate the workers' rights to choose to work for less under that yes, thinking. Right.
1: Right. Yes, exactly. The, the law in its majesty equally forbids um, or, or equally allows workers and bosses to enter into really shitty contracts for workers. That was that was the constitutional theory.
0: Quite beneficent. So the, sorry, I'm sorry, go on. Uh, just as I uh, quite beneficent of them.
1: <laughs> so um, it <clears throat> so the, the First Amendment is the candidate. In the 21st century, to do that kind of work. And if you just look at it through a a paranoid and abstract lens, the potential to redefine big tracts of economic life, actually from um, the question, what kind of contracts, what kind of agreements you enter into, certainly to the kinds of regulation of pharma and finance and other business and advertising that we were talking about a minute ago, is pretty expansive. Um, a, a determined set of jurists could find a lot of commercial business activity um involved in forms of speech or forms of expression and um and then wrap them up in constitutional protection so this is a it's not just a loaded gun it's a gun that's that's gone off a couple of times and put some bullets in the plaster and everyone i think is watching it very nervously or should be
0: and this could uh impact as well uh workers' rights to collectively bargain in the sense that I think – I believe that the question that came to the Supreme Court about public sector unionization, that the conservative argument on that was that it, uh, I guess, unconstitutionally compelled workers' speech. Mm By yeah and com- yes and compelled them to associate
1: for and support a political purpose, collective bargaining, advocacy, and representation. All of that's also under First Amendment thinking um, that they wouldn't otherwise have chosen exactly. Um, so you can use a kind of overgrown idea of personal autonomy to break apart um, institutions that are functionally necessary to basic forms of solidarity. Uh, I, I think that the the example is a powerful one because it highlights that where the old constitutional theory of the right of free contract was a kind of classically liberal jurisprudence, um, the modern uh, doctrine of constitutional free speech as a pro-business, pro-capital um, position is a kind of neoliberal jurisprudence that celebrates an ideal of the self-defining individual who chooses what to show the world, what to express, what to say, who to be, and can't be confined by things like collective bargaining arrangements or um, mandatory dues for representation.
0: And though they work to different ends, the uh, late 19th, early 20th century version and what we're seeing today, they do rely Uh, They do point to different parts of the Constitution as as cover for what they're what they're accomplishing.
1: Right. Free speech versus um, the liberty under due process.
0: Um, I want to turn back to the question of Trump and norms um, without romanticizing norms, as we were discussing earlier, but also
1: promise not to. Yeah,
0: I'm sure you won't. But also taking seriously the danger Trump poses, which is a tough balance to strike. And what got me thinking about this was the um, reports that Customs and Border Protection uh, officials were disobeying um, the court order against the ban. And people quickly started to discuss the possibility that Trump at some point, um, and it seems plausible, um, could just simply... Uh, flout, refuse to uh, mm-hmm. obey a court order, and precipitate a constitutional crisis. Do you think that this could happen at some point? How would that play out, and how should we think about constitutional crisis? <clears throat>
1: I think it could. Um, I agree with you that it's it's it it looks more plausible every day, as you see that his willingness to rely for political energy. And legitimation of a kind um, on a friend-enemy uh, distinction, both facing outside the country and very much within the country to, to, to target the enemies within. Um, it was not just a campaign tactic, but also looks to be a, a governing tactic, and that the courts remain in in his sights, and he would, I think. Be perfectly willing to turn a certain kind of right-wing nationalist, fear-driven populism against courts that he could portray as being in the way of security or in the way of asserting the prerogatives of real Americans or whatever exactly is going to be the formulation at the time he he makes this this move. Um, say
0: say after a catastrophic terrorist attack,
1: or even yeah, or yes. I I kind of shaking because uh, not shaking my head shaking my body because that's that is of course the scenario that we're all terrified of maybe even after an intermediate terrorist attack um but yes precisely so so how should how should we think about that I I I think there are times when Norms break down and politics becomes more vividly war by other means than it normally is. Um, I think that situation is less unusual than ordinary liberal liberal civics suggests. I think there were real respects in which it was true during the New Deal that Roosevelt ground down um, and openly politically defied um, up to a. a in very real ways um, a judiciary that stood against him for a while in the name of the the old more laissez-faire regime I think there were real ways that in the civil rights era the federal government and the civil rights movement once they were working on on the same side decisively from the early 60s on um, ground down A form of resistance in the South that understood itself to be constitutional resistance, that believed that it was facing overreaching federal power and that had to be broken. Um, I I give these examples because I have the impression, not unique to me, that people around Trump like Bannon – are perfectly happy to try to break their opposition and to grind down the norms that their opposition will rely upon. And in that respect, they do want to take politics somewhat closer to war in a way that was very far from the political instincts, let's say, of Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, or really, certainly from... From the first Bush, we, we probably don't need to go into elaborate comparative measurements of, of norm-breaking. Um, though Dick Cheney, Dick Cheney was certainly one of these people in the international sphere. Whether he was one of these people domestically is, is a closer question. Um, if that's going to happen, then it falls to all political forces to defend the judiciary on the right grounds. And I think those grounds are the valid left reasons for wanting a break against political, politically repressive opportunism in a time of panic, for maintaining regular procedures and protections against deprivations of liberty and, and life, that is, you know, of, of imprisonment and murder, um, and maintaining an institution that has some shot at keeping up a consistent solicitude for the political interests of um, populations that are subordinated in the political process. I think all of those functions of the judiciary um, will need to be named and defended rather than just, just the judiciary as a kind of mystical embodiment of American democracy, named and defended by elected officials, but also very much by people... By people in the streets um, I was I, i've been heartened by a lot of things in the last month, even though stuff has been so bad um, and one of those was the rush to the airports, um, which although it wasn 't just spontaneous was partly spontaneous and massive on the announcement of of the executive order that um, some border guards are now now lawlessly maintaining, even though it's enjoined. Because um, I felt that people had a sense, I, I certainly, so I'll, I'll be a, a little more concrete, but we, as we were rushing out to our airport, I didn't have time to make a sign. So I grabbed my constitutional law casebook, which I teach from, which is a nine pound red, bright red battleship. And I just held it up. Um, and um, a lot of A lot of people with a lot of different center to left of center kinds of kinds of starting points were really happy to see it. I think there was some sense that many of the people shared that uh, part of what they were doing there was absolutely what it needed to be, uh, humanitarian and left solidarity with people who were being vilified and um, and targeted. Um, But there was also some idea of constitutional fairness um, and legitimacy that um, viscerally felt like it was uh, getting threatened, and that, that was part of what people were hurrying to defend, partly because it 's integrally linked with those more substantive humanitarian and left solidarity values so um, i think I think there 's going to have to be a lot of that I think ironically, a liberal might think, but I think ultimately not all that ironically, if the courts are attacked, then one of the many things that some people on the left are going to need to do is to go out into the streets in a show of what I hope is peaceful and forced to, um, in solidarity with them.
0: Well, that is a solid analysis of a set of chilling scenarios. Um, I want to shift gears uh, to wrap this up to a totally different, though perhaps not as different as it may seem, subject. Um, since one of your areas of expertise is the environment and i have you on the line Um, so i'm cribbing this question from historian andy bruno who suggested it on my facebook wall how can the left develop an environmental politics that is sufficiently detached from growth in a way that neither past socialist experiments nor social democracy have been while at the same time avoiding the misanthropy and disregard for social justice that characterized some of the anti-growth environmentalism of the 1970s. Well, that's a perfect
1: question. Um, so, I've I've tried to think about this, and I don't think that I've done anything particularly adequate because I think the problem is is very very deep, actually. And what um, his formulation points to is that we really don't know of a modern political regime whose stability and effective legitimacy, which to some extent come down to the same thing um, has not depended on maintaining levels of growth that we have pretty good reason to think are not compatible with um, environmental sustainability under present technological and demographic scenarios so whoa um if we, it's, when you say um, it's implicit that modern liberal capitalism is, is totally failing on that front, and when you observe that neither socialism nor social democracy succeeded, you've pretty much run the table, and everyone is failing at a basic structural level by this by this standard. So,
0: yeah, exactly. And and your 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 woe, uh, I'm worried is uh, significant. <laughs> well, yeah, <more>
1: <laughs> I mean, if I, yeah. Um, that seems like a reasonable thing to fear. Um, how do I, how do I think about this in very fragmented and partial ways? Um, one is that' it's, it's, it's small. It's very small compared to the scope of the thing. but um, people who who do identify politically in some measure with environmentalism, which I do, um, I think um benefit from understanding that although in the in the formulation of the, of modern environmental politics and even law that got shaped in the early 1970s, there's there's a real bifurcation between justice concerns and power concerns on the one hand and environmental concerns on the other. And there's definitely a long strand of misanthropy and racism and nativism and American environmentalism, which I've written about and lots of other people have. Um, There's also a long tradition, what I've started to think of as a long environmental justice movement in which people working on even the most radically green issues like preserving wilderness, which is sort of like the stereotype of what people care about if they like trees, but not people. Um, were also very left people who saw that work as integrally involved in an attempt to create more humane economic and social orders. Um, the founder of the Wilderness Society was a self identified socialists. Bob Marshall and other of his allies were big planners and radical economic reformers of the New Deal variety. And and the connection wasn't incidental. To them it was part of making a humane world that cared about more than growth and that limited the power of money that you you saved some places. Um and there there have even been very intense Labor left environmentalisms intermittently, well, well up into the 19, well, no, into the early 1970s. Um, there's an amazing history of the miners for democracy in West Virginia, um, making the case that um, mining that destroyed mountaintops and mining that killed streams shouldn't be done. Because of its effect on community and landscape, and not only shouldn't be done in the sense that it should be illegal, but that the miners should enforce that principle through work stoppages, just like they should enforce the principle of safe workplaces through strikes. It's pretty amazing the thought of unions striking to enforce landscape care. Obviously, in in southern Appalachia now, we're we're a lot of miles away from that. So these are these are resources I think for environmentalists to think with and i also think that at a very broad level if you think that stepping back now more abstractly if you think that one thing everyone on the left is 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 broadly for <clears throat> is social provision real security making making the world less fearsome giving people less to be afraid of taking the zero sum and competitive Toxin out of more of our institutions and in and, and more of our um, economic lives. Even though neither socialism nor social democracy solved the environmental conundrum, I feel sure that it's only with that kind of left program of real security, that you can change the microeconomics of people's decisions so that it's no longer true that you're never sure you have enough because you never know what's going to come around the horizon and fuck you, you know, or or, uh, or what you're going to need to buy since everything you need, you have to buy. Um, and when that changes, there's at least room for a less fearful, um, engagement with the macroeconomics of it. At least there's there's some space in which to think about forms of collective restraint and forms of collective value that are not just uh, material or not just monetary, um, that are kind of blocked by rational fear. And one of the ways neoliberalism gets so much work out of people is by making it, making it rational to be afraid for your own future. So I think there's at least some way that what we're all trying to do offers a precondition to an environmental politics that could make more sense.
0: That's all I've got. Well, that's, that's almost as good as, as, (laughs) as hope. (laughs) That's that's going to be my new new t-shirt. I'll take the half loaf. Um, My last question Um, I want to try to bring things full circle to the degree that I can accomplish this um, and take it back to Trump. He obviously, it's been noted widely, came to power um, in part because of economic crisis, racism, the endless war on terror. But should we be taking the context of ecological crisis? um, Should that be shaping our understanding of Mm -hmm. the rise of Trumpism?
1: There's a tremendous amount of denialism in Trumpism denialism about the structural drivers of um, the and the scale of the changes that have eviscerated a lot of forms of work and a lot of communities um, denial about the change in the um, the way the country looks and who's here and what that means. Um, and a, a wish to wave those things away that starts out as nostalgia and then potentially becomes violent as it gets frustrated. Um, and um, the, one of the the forms of the, that denial takes obviously is the compensatory fantasy of the um, the paternalist strong man who can who can like, shake the pillars of the world. So when you ask, Where is the deep pressure point of denial right now? What's the thing, other than death, that everyone is going around denying much of the time? I would say there's a pretty good case that we're denying that the world is... um, shaking itself apart under the pressure of climate change and all the other ecological disruptions that it stands in for. And the fact that this is a denialist administration on point of climate that's made the embrace of old fuels, old destructive fuels, almost iconic, like the, like it's the, you know, the the Detroit metal of, um, of um, of the American political imagination, like if we if we all had eight cylinders and got eight miles to the gallon again, then we would then we would really feel great. Um, I think there may be some deep way that climate denial is implicated in all these other kinds of denial, but it might just be that it seems that way to me because it has a kind of um, poetic appeal, and it puts so many of the things that I care about and worry about together.
0: Jed, thank you so much. Jed, what
1: a pleasure. Seriously, thank you for uh, for it.
0: Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week or two. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, Jeffrey Brodsky, and Liza Yeager. Music by Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. And also, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, and so does telling all of your friends. The more propaganda on our behalf, the better.